for those of you who weren't here at the beginning, my name's Guy Armstrong. I'm one of the Spirit Rock teachers. Sylvia couldn't be here this morning, so asked me to uh, sit in with you all, and I'm really happy to be here. I've had uh, great times with uh, Sylvia's group in the past, so I'm happy to come again. What I thought uh, we might talk about this morning is um, something along the themes of uh, our worldly life and our spiritual life. And while these two don't need to be in conflict, uh, they often are. (laughs) Especially living in Marin County in the 21st century. Life is so complicated uh, these days and so expensive around here. That breeds some of the problems. And some of it also is a shift in values that happens as we get more and more into into practice. So I wanted to talk about um, this from a few different directions, but a little bit the outer and also the inner um, relationship to these questions. Somebody asked me at the end of a retreat recently, on a retreat up the hill, they were in an interview and asked, why is it so hard to stay present in daily life? And I thought that was a really good question because I think that we should all be looking at that uh, question in our own lives, in our own experience. So I'll just put it out to you all as a group. Why is it so hard to stay present in daily life? <laughs> it seems to be more than normal. It seems to be universal. the distractions are endless, multiplying, overwhelming. Yeah. Lots of distractions, such as. Such as. Well, the traffic drives you crazy. Uh, yeah. The price of everything drives you nuts. And the crowds of people swarming around are incredibly aggravating. <laughs> <laughs> is that an is that an intrinsic? Uh, the situation are totally maddening. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> All right, there are lots of, certainly there are are lots of stimulations. There are lots of things to deal with out there. What else? Um, I'd like to just say uh, how I had a difficult time coming Mm -hmm. here today. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. There were detours on the road. Right. the exits or entrances to the freeway were closed and I didn't know how to come. Um, I thought I was going to beat the whole system by having a tape of Sylvia Borstein uh, listening to that on talking about how to be happy. (laughs) (laughs) She also has one on road sage, so that's a good one. So I was very focused on listening to her tape. Yes. Consequently, I got lost. I to outdo the Fairfax uh, construction yeah. and taking yeah. side roads and ending up going back to the East Bay. <laughs> and when I finally realized that I was really on the wrong road, I had to turn the tape off. <laughs> And then I started to mm. cry <laughs> because mm. I thought, I'm really confused. You know? mm. I'm, I'm really trying very hard. I was just mm. on my first residential retreat this last weekend. Oh, no wonder. And <laughs> 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 having a very difficult time re-entering or holding yeah. on to that yeah. and trying to come back here um, was was uh, it was the only safe place I knew to come. Right. And yet I couldn't get here. <laughs> <laughs> I left in plenty of time and yeah. it took me over an hour to get here and yeah. I was late. Um, but once I turned the tape off and I then clearly focused on where mm-hmm. I was going, I mm-hmm. if I went on Center Street, I would avoid mm-hmm. all that. Mm-hmm. You know, confusion, mm-hmm. and I got here in a short time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So trying to beat the system doesn't seem to work. <laughs> <laughs> and what yeah. happened is I wasn't 
fully able to listen to what Sylvia was saying because I had right. to pay attention to the traffic. Right. So trying to do two things at once did not really work. Right. Um, and it was disappointing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Well, this is kind of a really good illustration, isn't it, of um, <laughs> spiritual values and worldly values and where we put the emphasis in our attention. And I, I do want to come back to this because I think this is a good highlight. Let's see if there are other comments. Yes, in the back. I think that the problem is that your mind tends to jump around from subject to subject mm-hmm. anyway, even when there's no stimuli. But then yes. introduce whatever yeah. is coming in on the outside and then yeah. you just uh, resonate with each other. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And I'd like to look at both aspects of that comment. Um, the first part was that the mind tends to jump around anyway, even when there aren't stimuli. And I think this is a really important thing for meditators to start to notice and to take into account. Our minds are habitual in their jumping around. This is sometimes described as monkey mind, where the mind just swings from one branch to the next, and it won't let go of one branch until it sees the next one that it's going to cling on to. So this tendency of the mind to always be occupied with some kind of distraction is a really important thing to come to terms with. This is something that can be trained. This is really the purpose of meditation, is to train this habit to be in a different mode so that the mind starts to like being in the present moment more and more and sees that it doesn't actually need these distracting thoughts to cling on to in times when there's basically peace or a lack of stimulation around. So partly we could say this is a habit, but as you mentioned, when there are lots of stimuli coming in, then it stirs the mind up even further. Yes? I think the modern day tendency is is that there are so many complexities in modern life that our attention is drawn in many ways. Mm Yeah. It's a fallacy because it's. I read an interesting article just, uh, I think it was yesterday or the day before in the San Francisco paper, that a scientific study has shown that the attention cannot be drawn in more than one direction when it mm-hmm. is. Instead of mm-hmm. increasing our focus, it mm-hmm. decreases the focus mm-hmm. and the task mm-hmm. takes longer. Mm-hmm. It was in relation to um, speaking on the cell phone and driving at the same time. Yeah, no, I think, you, I think your comments are right on. The dividing of attention, when we look at what it does inwardly, you know, I, it's, it's hard to measure the outer effect in terms of efficiency, but inwardly it fragments us. And we can't, we, I think as a culture, we've kind of lost our ability to be wholehearted with what we do in the present moment. And you look at kids, kids have that. They're completely with whatever they're doing. You give them one thing to do, and if it engages them, they're 100% with us, with it. Whereas for us, we've been so fragmented by training that it's hard to bring 100% of our attention and energy to anything that we do. And mindfulness does offer uh, a clear alternative of fully being with what is in the present. Let's take just one or two more. Please. I was going to say, and underneath that is, is the reason why we feel we need to multitask. That mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. so many cultural things that say we're not doing enough, mm-hmm. we should be more, mm-hmm. that we're not good enough the way we are, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. You, know, you can get rather this sort of desperate activity 
mm-hmm. to try and mm-hmm. remedy that. Yeah. But it doesn't seem to be something you can actually achieve through those activities. Yeah. And th- this, I think this gets to another piece of the heart of what I wanted us to explore this morning is, are we, in our worldly life, are we doing the things that will actually bring us happiness? Or are we getting lost and distracted in our very activities and leading down a trail that will lead somewhere but not necessarily to real happiness? Thank you. Last, last comment, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not present. You know, we're either living the past or living mm-hmm. for the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. The, and this conditioning is something that really is highlighted by the practice of meditation, I think. When we start to try to come into the present in an, an ongoing and consistent way, we really see how easily the mind just swings to the past or the future, just out of habit just out of conditioning. And the good news is that can be changed. That can be retrained and we can learn a new habit for that. Good. Thank you. So I think these comments have highlighted a lot of the the themes that I hoped that we would touch on this morning and I want to go into them all in a little more detail. Let me just ask, how many people here have been on at least a day-long silent retreat? Great. And how many people have been on a residential uh, meditation retreat? Okay. Uh, Much of the same population, actually. That's interesting. Uh, One of the things that we find, I think, when we try to sustain this practice of mindfulness over, say, eight hours or or eight days, is that um, it becomes pretty much a full-time job. It can take all of our attention just to stay in the present moment. And the nice thing is about the retreat setting or the day-long setting is we don't have any other responsibilities. We don't have to interact with people. We don't have to carry out our jobs. We don't have to take care of our children or look after our partners. The only task we have in those settings is to be in the present moment with our experience. And we find out how difficult that is. We don't have anything else to do. But, I mean, I don't know if people would be willing to share... How much of the time are you able to be in the present moment, even under the ideal settings? 10%? 20%? (laughs) Little tiny bit, huh? It's hard. It's tough work. And that's when we don't have anything else to do. Now, then we go back into, into worldly life. As practitioners, if we want to take this practice on as a, as a real commitment, we want to bring that ability to be in the present moment fully into our daily life as well. This is not just something we do on the cushion or during a day long or in a silent retreat. We really want to live from that place of being in the present moment. And there's no reason that we can't with training and with um, practice. That's really what practice is for. It is possible. But it takes a lot of work. So in lay life, we have this full-time job of wanting to be in the present. We have another full-time job in lay life, in worldly life, which I'm sure you've noticed, which is earning a livelihood, taking care of our family, looking after our health, uh, doing our volunteer work and service work, looking after uh, aging parents and children, relationship and so on. So we basically, in in worldly life, we have two full-time jobs. Being in the present and attentive to all of that and taking care of all the external things that we need to take care of. So it's no wonder that it takes a while to put these two full-time jobs together. Don't be discouraged if this doesn't happen automatically or easily. This is a long process of training. They can go together, But what's happening is that we have to divide our attention, or we might say our intention, just as you shared about driving over here and trying to listen to a tape and also follow the detour signs. In worldly life, we need to bring our attention into the present moment. That's one sustained attention we need to maintain. But then we also need to care 
um, for all the things of our daily life with a lot of attention also. So we're kind of divided, and I'd say there's an inherent um, conflict in the beginning for us because of trying to support two intentions, two different intentions at the same time. Question? It seems like there's just not really enough time of day to don't multitask. You know, if I'm not like reading while mm-hmm. I'm with my dog or mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 while driving, yeah. then I don't have time to do so. Yeah. I think we are I think we are way overscheduled. I think it's really true and sometimes it seems like the only answer is to jam things in further together. How many of you have seen the movie Himalaya? Just right. About the same number who've been on these residential retreats. Um, Himalaya is playing at the Rafael and probably other places in the Bay Area and it's about uh village life theoretically in Tibet is actually filmed in Nepal, but theoretically in Tibet. And it's about the life of uh, people who grow grain and then trade that grain uh, for salt and trade the salt for, no, trade the salt for grain, for more grain. So you get a sense, it it could have been set a thousand years ago, could have been filmed a thousand years ago. You get a sense for the simplicity of the life that people used to live and this is in our culture as well. In, um, in Western culture, farming was the occupation of most of the nation 100 or 200 years ago. And that simple um, down-to-earth life where there weren't things like um, tax-free mutual funds and a hundred different kinds of uh, sandwich that you could order every time you go to the deli, um, ten different activities for your children uh, after they finish the school day. Life was much, much simpler and it kind of lent itself to being in the present moment in a way that modern life really doesn't. So on some level, I think we probably need to take a look as practitioners at the complexity of our outer lives. And I, I see in myself as I get older and I see in a lot of friends as we get older, a real interest in simplifying. Now, there's a time in life when that's not possible. When you're starting a career and raising a family, they're, especially in this area, it's so expensive. There's so many demands, there may not be any choices for simplification. But as we get older and some of the family responsibilities start to lift, I really think we need to look seriously at simplifying and creating space. When we create space outwardly, It creates so much more space in the mind. It's amazing. Taking the outer clutter away just opens up a huge amount of of inner spaciousness. So even choices like how much television we choose to watch, how many films we go to, um, how many magazines we read during a week, renunciation in those areas can can make a difference too. So I think the outer is, is important. But I think I want to focus most on, on the inner. So I think part of the problem is that um, we have these dual intentions to look after ourselves and our family and to be present while we do it. But worldly life um, offers so many seductive possibilities. There are so many ways that we can lose track of our spiritual orientation in worldly life because our culture doesn't support spiritual values. I I don't believe it supports them at all. Um, Try to um, talk to your employer about taking an extra week's leave to do a meditation retreat and see how supportive the external situation is. So worldly life offers many, many um, possibilities that are um, intriguing, fulfilling, rich, lots of people to meet, lots of things to do, ways to become known, ways to serve, but they don't necessarily support a spiritual life. And I think the problem is that we can get lost in any one of these avenues. I was just talking to someone um, this week who had lost their partner to cancer. And she was saying that um, before her partner's death, she was very wrapped up in her career. 
was almost more important than her family. And then going through the illness and the death of her partner, she said, totally shifted her priorities back. And her career right now feels kind of hollow to her because she sees how much more important are the people in her life. But until we get a wake-up call like that, I think we can all tend to put a huge amount of emphasis on career. And there are a lot of fun things about many, many work situations these days. But at the end of the day, I wonder if it's the most important thing in our life. So something, again, I think we need to look at. I want to read a couple of quotations. And these are both from um, people, I don't know, you may have seen this new breed of spiritual teacher that's popping up. They're not connected with any tradition, but they've sort of woken up on their own. And one of the prime examples right now is Eckhart Tolle. And this is his book, The Power of Now, which I notice has been on the San Francisco bestseller list for something like four months. It's not on the U.S. bestseller list, I can assure you. But it has been on the Bay Area bestseller list for a while. And he's, I think he's 53 years old. He was German by birth and now lives in Canada. And just had a spontaneous awakening some years ago. Um, spent time just sitting on a park bench and sharing his understanding with people who, who wandered by, but is now teaching. And uh, I, th- I think his book is pretty good. And I wanted to read something from it. He's talking about working with our difficult uh, emotions, the afflictive emotions of the mind. So basically all these emotions are modifications of one primordial, undifferentiated emotion that has its origin in the loss of awareness of who you are beyond name and form. This is a little dense, so I'm gonna, I want to read this again. All afflictive emotions are modifications of one primordial, undifferentiated emotion that has its origin in the loss of awareness of who you are beyond name and form. In other words, the meaning is that who we truly are is not this body and this personality. Who we are truly is something that goes beyond our name and form, something the Buddha pointed to as the deathless, all the major religions point to an aspect of immortality in our being that's formless. And he's saying that when we lose touch with knowing that we are um, deathless in the most fundamental way, there's a deep kind of anguish that comes out of that. And then I'd also like to read from another uh, teacher in this same mode. His name is Tony Parsons. He's British. He was born in 1933, and he had one of these spontaneous awakenings when he was 20. And his book is called As It Is. Whatever I seek or think I want, all of my desires are only a reflection of my longing to come home. Home is my original nature. It is right here, simply in what is. So these two are basically saying the same thing. Eckhart Tolle's pointing to the pain of that loss, and Tony Parsons is pointing to the desire to get back. And what Parsons is saying is that all forms of desire are really just a desire to get back to knowing who we truly are, because that's the only place that lasting fulfillment can come from. So what I think happens in our worldly life often is that all uh, these myriad forms of desire point us in all different directions, toward money, toward fame, uh, toward uh, sexual relationships, toward uh, pleasures of food and drink and so on, great houses. And all these kinds of desires that proliferate are kind of misleading indicators of what we really want. What we really want is to know our being beyond name and form beyond birth and death, beyond perishing. But we seek for it because we've lost touch with that. We seek for it in many, many different avenues that can't ultimately lead to to lasting happiness. But it's not to say that these outer activities are wrong. We need to be involved 
in a livelihood that takes care of ourselves. We need to be involved in looking after our family and our partners and our parents. So the question is, to what extent can we be involved in those areas and not get uh, misled by what's really important and where our real happiness is going to come from? To me, the best description of where we get misled uh, is spelled out by the Buddha. And it's in a sutta, uh, this is from the Anguttara Nikaya, called The Vicissitudes of Life. It's a great title. And it starts off like this. These eight worldly conditions, O monks, keep the world turning around. And the world turns around these eight worldly conditions. What eight? Gain and loss, success and failure, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. So he's basically saying the way we get misled is we mistake these eight conditions as the most important things in life. And the degree to which we invest in them is the degree to which we carry ourselves off from our true spiritual track. So I find these very, very helpful topics for reflection. And to look in my own life, how much my focus in living and where I put my time and energy is around these eight situations as opposed to the true spiritual practice of knowing who I am, coming back to my source. Because the problem with these conditions is they're always changeable. They always alternate. Have you ever known anyone who has experienced only gain, (laughs) only success, only pleasure, or only praise? It's not possible. They alternate for all of us. And if our happiness is bound up just with the positive half, we're going to get slammed when we encounter the negative. It's not through any fault of our own that we encounter the negative. Everybody encounters loss and pain and blame and failure. Even the Buddha. And I'll tell some of the stories about the Buddha's difficulties as we go, just so you know. You know, even if you're really cooled out, these things happen to you. So I'll talk a little bit about um, each of them. Um, I'll talk first about gain and loss. And I don't really want to get into the kind of great losses in our life. I think losing a partner to death, losing a child, um, loss of parents, those are major things. And hopefully we only encounter those relatively few times in our life. But mostly the Buddha talked about gain and loss in more worldly terms. And in worldly terms, this is a great territory, the Bay Area, to see gain and loss. (laughs) You've probably noticed the stories in the newspapers over the last year, the dot-com downturn, the stock market collapse. There are huge stories of wealth rising and falling in this area. I'll just tell one from my experience. I went to work, it was about 13 years ago, for Microsoft. They were still a small company back then. And I worked for them for about five years. You know, it was after I left, they started getting in all their trouble. That's, that's their problem. <laughs> and uh, my first boss, the guy who hired me into the company, was a really great guy. I liked him a lot as a person and as a manager. And um, shortly after I was there, he got into kind of a political difficulty in the, in the company. He got passed over for a promotion. And the job went to um, somebody else in our office who he didn't respect, didn't think was a good manager. He was very upset that he'd been passed over. And he was more upset that now he had to report to this other person who he felt was not as good a manager as he was. And one thing led to another, and one day in a a peak of of anger, uh, he resigned, tendered his resignation. Over the weekend, he had second thoughts, because I came to find out he had about 10,000 stock options back then in Microsoft. And over the years since then, Microsoft stock has split a total of 72 times. So today, that would be something like 720,000 
shares of Microsoft, which he could have bought at something like a dollar a share. So I figured out that today he would have been worth about $40 million if he had stayed with the company. But in a fit of anger, he tendered his resignation. He called up on Monday and said, you know, I'm very sorry. I didn't mean I'd like to take it back. But his new manager said, I'm sorry, your resignation has already been accepted. $40 million. <laughs> Boom. A friend of mine commented, um, because of the stock market collapse, that uh, he knows people who are worth $20 million now who feel themselves to be poor because a year ago they were worth $40 million. And, you know, there's a lot of dukkha in the collapse of the stock market. We don't hear much about it, I think, because people at that level are embarrassed to talk about feeling poor with $20 million, and probably they should be. <laughs> but there's a lot of dukkha in the collapse of the stock market, the gain and the loss. So the Buddha goes on to talk about how we can, uh, how he sees relating to these conditions. He says these eight worldly conditions are encountered by an uninstructed worldling, means someone who hasn't heard the teachings, and they are also encountered by an instructed noble disciple. What is the difference between these two? He goes on to say, when an uninstructed worldling comes upon gain, he does not reflect upon it thus. This gain that has come to me is impermanent, bound up with suffering, subject to change. He does not know it as it really is. And when he comes upon loss, he does not reflect upon it thus. This is impermanent, bound up with suffering, subject to change. He does not know it as it really is. With such a person, gain and loss keep his mind engrossed. When gain comes, he is elated, and when he meets with loss, he is dejected. Being thus involved in likes and dislikes, he will not be freed from birth, aging, and death, from sorrow, grief, and despair. He will not be freed from suffering, I declare. But, O monks, when an instructed noble disciple comes upon gain, he reflects on it thus, This gain that has come to me is impermanent, bound up with suffering, subject to change. And so he will reflect when loss comes upon him. He understands these things as they really are, and they do not engross his mind. Thus he will not be elated by gain or dejected by loss. Having thus given up likes and dislikes, he will be freed from birth, aging, and death from sorrow, grief, and despair. He will be freed from suffering, I declare. This, monks, is the difference between an uninstructed noble, between an instructed noble disciple and an uninstructed worldling. So the Buddha is basically pointing to an equanimity of mind as we meet the changing conditions that life presents, the changing conditions of gain and loss. And an, an, an important aspect of it is wisdom that we see the impermanent nature of gain and loss. We see that nobody is always gaining. Nobody is always being praised. Nobody just has the positive side of these things. These things change for everybody. There's another there's an amazing story from the Tibetan tradition about this. Uh, this is a teacher named Nyosho Ken Rinpoche. He was born in Tibet in 1932, escaped from Tibet in 1959, and went to India. He's a very great Dzogchen master, uh, one of the greatest probably of the last 50 years, and one of the few who came to the West and, and taught in the West, and somebody I had the pleasure of meeting. Very impressive uh, man. So he'd practiced in Tibet and gotten a lot of um, high realization. He'd gotten instruction from some very great, uh, very great teachers. And then he came to India. And as part of the Tibetan uh, refugee movement. And there wasn't a lot of uh, provision for Tibetan refugees in India. There wasn't a great uh, safety net, you might say. He says, I lived in India for 25 years by myself without accumulating anything, just one old man alone. Sometimes I gave Dharma talks in monasteries. 
Sometimes I stayed with sadhus in Rishikesh and Hardwar, along the Ganges, in ashrams, under trees, wherever the descent of dusk found me. So many different dreamlike experiences. Sometimes I gave empowerments to great assemblies of people, including dozens of tolkus and lamas, where they put a golden initiation vase in my hand and I placed it on the heads of thousands of monks. So here he was in this position of great exaltation and giving blessings to thousands of Tibetan practitioners. At other times I was utterly poor, living hand to mouth on the streets in Calcutta, wandering around with my hand out begging for pennies. So many unexpected ups and downs, who can describe them? Life is like that, full of unexpected twists and turns, impermanent, ungovernable, and unstable. What a spectacle. (laughs) So even great realized beings encounter these same kind of swings of fortune that we do. And then how do we relate to them? How do we deal with them? The Buddha was not immune to these either. At one point, it said in the suttas that he realized through his psychic powers he could um, take the highest mountain in the Himalayas and turn it into gold. And he contemplated, should he do that or not? I mean, that would have been good for the monks and nuns, right? To have a mountain of gold and then they could always be supported. But he chose not to do it. And what he reflected on, he said, is that there's no end to the greed for gold. Once you start down that path, it's never satisfied. So he just, he just didn't do it. The Tibetan definition, actually, of renunciation is to accept what comes into our life and to let go of what goes out of our life. To accept them both. This is also from the Buddha. Insignificant, O monks, is the loss of wealth and fame. The loss of wisdom is the greatest loss. Insignificant, O monks, is the increase of wealth and fame. The increase of wisdom is the greatest gain. Therefore, monks, you should train yourselves thus. We will grow in the increase of wisdom. Praise and blame is another really interesting one uh, to reflect on. I thought the Buddha was so impeccable in his speech and his action that nobody could criticize him, nobody could blame him. But it's not like that. The Buddha encountered um, praise and blame just like everybody. And in fact, he said, there is no one in this world who is not subject to praise and blame. In fact, his cousin tried to kill him. His cousin was also a monk and was jealous of the Buddha's position at the head of the Sangha. He wanted that position for himself, so he tried to kill the Buddha so he could take over. Fortunately, he missed. Um, Often, the Buddha would go places with monks and nuns, and people in the village would spread uh, false stories about them, slandering them, saying that they were evil and trying to harm people to deprive them of food out of jealousy or uh, some dispute. So even the Buddha was not immune from this. Ajahn Sumedho uh, who was here about a month ago, great uh, teacher, American in uh, Thai robes, said that when he was young, he just wanted to be a hermit. He wanted to go away into a cave or in a little hut out in the forest somewhere and just practice on his own for the rest of his life. But his teacher, Ajahn Chah, kept forcing him into more and more responsibility in the monasteries and made him an abbot of a monastery after only eight years of practice. Ajahn Sumedho said, how can you do this after eight years? He said, you got, to pr- you got to practice for 20 years before you had to be an abbot. How can you make me an abbot after eight years? And Ajahn Chah just said, no, this is what's needed, Sumedho, you go do it. And he said now that he really appreciates that that happened because being thrown into community life, he got so much um, criticism and so much anger directed toward him <laughs> that he had to learn how to deal with it. And he said if he had just gone out into the forest and lived a peaceful, solitary life, 
he would never have known how to deal with that. He would always have been afraid of other people. But he said going through years and years of community life, he learned how to work with praise and blame. And he said now people can say anything to him, and he's not really bothered by it. So he has this great equanimity and kind of a fearlessness that you really feel in his presence. So I thought that was quite beautiful. Pleasure and pain alternate in our lives all the time. I don't think I have to dwell on that because it's so much the focus of meditation practice, seeing how we respond to pleasure with holding on and how we try to push away pain. Um, Success and failure is another uh, key area. And in a certain way, you know, we want to be successful. It's fine. In our livelihood, we want to make enough money to support ourselves and our family. In our relationships, we want to have a happy relationship. We don't want to have a lot of dukkha, a lot of pain in our relationships. We want to do well in whatever um, contribution we're making to the world through our livelihood and through our volunteer work. But there's a way in which we can go beyond what's needed to focus on becoming more wealthy or more famous or uh, something like that and peg our own uh, self-worth on this idea of success. And you know, it's similar in meditation. We want to have a meditation that will help us to open help us to grow. The, I think the measure of meditation is basically if your um, difficult emotions are diminishing over the years. So you have less anxiety, uh, less fear, more uh, generosity, more kindness, less anger. Those to me are the test. But those are not short-term goals. To make those kinds of character changes, I like to think in a time frame of about five years to really gauge whether your practice is working or not. So there's a way in which we want to be successful, but if we try to control what's happening moment after moment and base our success on that, we'll tie ourselves up in knots. So it's really important to approach meditation with a very spacious kind of attitude. Whatever happens to me is okay when I sit down to meditate. Have that attitude of just inviting anything to come. And that very openness will create the very best uh, set, the very best context for your meditation practice. If you get very tight about wanting, you know, a high level of concentration right now or wanting to be with the breath, every breath for an hour, you can make yourself really tense in meditation. You don't get the benefits of relaxation from it. Ajahn Chah actually had a saying that I like a lot. He said, um, actually, in worldly terms, everybody wants to succeed and they don't want to fail. But in spiritual terms, success and failure are of equal value. Success and failure are of equal value. Because often, we learn more from failing than we ever do from succeeding. And it brings some humility, which is such an important part of the path. So, in a way, I'd say what we really want to develop as practitioners is a way to be in the world, but not dominated by it. Sometimes we say in the world, but not of it. But I understand that to mean not dominated by its values. Because if we're after worldly values, there's no lasting satisfaction because they're always changing. They alternate for everyone. So for me, being in the world but not of it means I'm in the world, but my intention is um, to deepen my understanding of who I am and to deepen my compassion and loving kindness in the world. And I try not to put my primary emphasis on gain and loss, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, success and failure. The more I invest in those things, 
beyond what's necessary just to support my life and my family's life, the more I feel it takes energy away from the spiritual orientation or the spiritual direction. There was a great example of this attitude uh, with Ajahn Jumnian. He's a Thai monk who comes here once a year. A lot of you may have met him. And he was talking to us in one, uh, one Dharma talk, saying how he works in his monastery in Thailand. He's the abbot of a very large monastery. He's a famous monk in Thailand. He says, I see people from the time I get up in the morning until the time I go to bed at night, sometimes nonstop. I'm just seeing people all day long. It's monks and nuns who want to talk about their meditation practice. It's lay people who are coming in from the nearby town or village to talk about their family life and their uh, work situation. It's the administrators of the monastery who want to know how much money do we have to spend on the new buildings we're putting up. He said, I receive people all day long. But he said, I never get tired. He said, and I try and tell my monks how to do that, but nobody else seems to be able to do it. He said, but I'll tell you my secret. I never get tired because I'm always resting in emptiness as I talk to them. And the way I interpreted that is that he is always in a space of non-clinging. He's in a space of freedom. So that even though these stories of gain and loss and suffering and happiness are going on in front of him, he doesn't cling to them. He's not drawn out of that space of peace that uh, clear, aware seeing by the changing conditions of life. And to me, that's what's really needed in order to truly be in the world, but not of it. And what this means is we actually have to care more about our freedom, our inner freedom, than we care about the changing nature of gain and loss, success and failure that are going on all around us. And I think this is why renunciation is such an important value. Renunciation doesn't mean you have to give away all your goods and move out of Marin and you know, live in a shack in the Sierra somewhere. It means that mentally we're not so invested in those outward things. So it's giving up the inner clinging that opens the door to freedom and not necessarily giving up the outer. So in this way, when we're not in the world so much about getting, getting, getting for ourselves, our motivation shifts. And we can start to look at our reason for being in the world more from a place of giving. And this is where our practice starts to, I feel, enter onto the bodhisattva track. When our reason for being in the world moves from getting into giving, then that opens the door for us to act and be in the world as, as bodhisattvas. And, and a person like that, in the, in the real flowering of the bodhisattva spirit, remains in the world out of a concern for others. So I'll just close with a quotation from Shanti David. This is one of the favorites of the Dalai Lama, one of the, uh, from the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life by an Indian author, Shantideva. For as long as space endures, and as long as sentient beings remain, may I too abide to dispel the unhappiness of this world. <coughs> so let's stop there and um, see if there are comments. Yeah. For as long as space endures, and as long as sentient beings remain, May I too abide to dispel the unhappiness of this world. So, comments, reflections, discussion. Please. It's a little off everything that you got to, but in the very beginning when you talked about Life on the farm is a life of simplicity yes. and so much better than our modern complexity. <clears throat> uh, my partner's uh, parents and grandparents grew up on farms in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. They worked night and day, mm -hmm. and they hated it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. There's a simplicity that we would mm -hmm. like to feel 
of being close to the earth because mm-hmm. it's I enjoy myself mm-hmm. driving, for example, which mm-hmm. doesn't have all those uh, need to make money and mm-hmm. that's attached to their way of life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think the reality of farming may not have been so simple. Mm-hmm. But, I, but the ideal, I mm-hmm. think that you're really speaking of the ideal that's concealed within it, which, of course, is, mm-hmm. is an ideal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's an interesting question, um, and how how livelihood has evolved over the centuries or even thousands of years of human life. Someone who had um, done a little study in anthropology quoted a figure to me that I haven't checked out, but it may may be true. She said that when human beings lived as hunter gatherers, that um, on average we spent about two hours of our day um, supplying ourselves with food. That meant there were basically 22 hours of the day for other occupations. And um, from the time that I've spent in, in Asia, uh, farming is still very hard, hard work in Asia. It doesn't bring much income. But there are also seasons where there's not much work going on at all. So even if people work hard for six months of the year, say in planting the rice harvest and then tending to it and harvesting it, in the dry period of the year, for rice farmers, there's not that much to do. So there seem to be much bigger chunks of leisure time built into farming kind of lifestyles than there are in our lifestyle. Um, But it is interesting that when you present the alternative to young people today in any part of the world to move off the farm and come to the city, they almost all take it. And I think part of it is because farming life is hard work I think another part of it is it's not very glitzy. The nightclubs and the discos and um, all the action is in the cities. And this is happening all over Asia. You know, the traditional ways of life are being lost as those countries become developed. Um, it, doesn't, it, it does work for greater comfort and a higher standard of living. I'm not sure it works for Dharma values. Even though the farming life is hard, there's a way in which farming economies can support Dharma values better through their simplicity. And just as an example, Dharma in Thailand, Buddhism in Thailand was stronger 50 years ago than it is today. And I I think part of that is the increased affluence. And all through Asia, if communism doesn't get Buddhism, capitalism is going to. Seems to be the story. (coughs) Well, this might seem obvious, but I'm kind of I'm trying to understand non-dual. Mm-hmm. And when you you're talking about the the the, op, the pairs of opposites, mm-hmm. and you told the story of Ajahn Sumedho and, and Ajahn Jumnian mm-hmm. um, being in emptiness or not re- reacting to those mm-hmm. both sides. Is that mm-hmm. are they are they in non-duality? I when, when you, you you're not affected by both sides of it? Is that what non-duality is? You know, there are probably um, depths to the term non-duality, and the the main um, term I would use for their kind of stance is equanimity. Equanimity where you're not so thrown by um, the circumstances, the changing circumstances of life. Equanimity, if it deepens a little bit, I think it goes into non-duality when you realize that there's no self there um, to own the gain or the loss. Because that's the real non-duality is self, non-self. Exactly. Yeah. So when you see through the fiction of um, a subject and an object, a subject to experience the gain or loss and gain or loss as the object, that's what creates the, the sense of dualism in it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right, that's clear. Yeah, that's thanks. Subject and object. Um, when we create a strong sense of subject and object in relation to something that's going on, then it's, it's bringing up the sense of a self. Mm-hmm. And what non-duality really means is that the sense of the self is, is not present. And so there's not a very strong experience of subject and object. Even if there's a, a slight experience of subject and object, if the wisdom factor is there, we know that there's no true self involved, and so it, it 
those subject and object formations just arise really lightly in the moment, but they don't grab us. They don't deceive us. following on what uh, Rashika said is that then because I really liked what you said about staying in that sense of equanimity not for all of us you know with our relationships because I can I mean we all have the um, you know I call it being with somebody who who for me it's not their fault but for me they're maybe an energy sucker you know you're just Mm -hmm. like oh you're after you're with Mm -hmm. them for whatever mm-hmm. reason. Yeah. And to be able to hold that place, mm-hmm. I can see where that would really be wonderful. Mm-hmm. And to be to be in that place all mm-hmm. the time, I think mm-hmm. that would be it. <laughs> yeah. Really be it. Amen. And so I really appreciate that the whole but but to me I'm not sure if I could do that on an ongoing basis, that must take a lot of practice. I mean, that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm the only one. I'm waiting to. I'm never going to get attached to that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wanting. Uh, <laughs> but so I think you, it is. So basically, in order to so it's just sitting more, being with that more, being aware of it all the time, mm-hmm. driving whatever, and just. Yeah. Trying to keep that space. You know, what I feel is that um, meditation is kind of the door, formal meditation practice is kind of the doorway into understanding these places where we can access. Mm-hmm. And once you've opened up the channel of access through formal meditation practice, then what you want to do is find it in more and more moments mm-hmm. of daily life and more and more moments within formal practice. Mm-hmm. Anytime you, you drop into that place for just a moment, it strengthens the habit of mind of being there and you know makes it more and more possible to abide there so eventually i think that is what we want is to be able to abide there all the time and the only thing that separates us from that is effort and practice you know that's the only thing standing between us and the dalai lama you know about uh, 17 lifetimes of practice <laughs> Mm-hmm. Other comments? Um, yeah, Maureen? I just have one thing in response to what you said about equanimity, something that really helped me that I heard for the first time recently on the on a retreat was and you can probably paraphrase it more mm. accurately, was that it's the practice of wholeheartedly wishing well, and at the same time, all beings are heir to their own karma. Mm-hmm. And grasping those two things wholeheartedly at the same time, that was an amazing aha to me, mm-hmm. Of, mm-hmm. of staying open and letting go. And I, mm-hmm. Not having to fix it. Yeah, yeah, yeah thank you. Yeah, in... Um, the retreat that Maureen was talking about was a metta retreat, but we also covered the other three Brahma-viharas, which are compassion, joy, and equanimity. And they each have their own phrase. And the phrase for equanimity is, classically, all beings are heirs to their own karma. So you hold someone in your heart, and you just repeat that phrase, and then the whole of their life situation, and their degree of happiness or unhappiness, starts to be felt as... Um, an outcome, a natural and lawful outcome of their own actions. And that's what gives the degree of equanimity in the world about the changing fortunes of, of others and ourselves. Because we can do this practice for ourselves too. And we see that these alternations of gain and loss and pleasure and pain and so on also have kind of a lawful unfolding to them. What are, what are the... Um the, the, the phrases for the other three Brahma Viharas. Okay, well, the metta phrases you all have probably heard, right? right. I won't go through because there are four of those. I won't go through those. Compassion phrase is something like, may you be free from your suffering. Uh-huh. It's most generic form. But you can tailor it. May you be free from your pain and sorrow. May you be free from your fear. May you be free from this illness. Something like that. The phrase for uh, joy is uh, basically may... May your happiness and fortune continue. 
something like that. So it's wishing that um, their happiness get even happier. This is the other side of that equanimity mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm having trouble with it. In mm-hmm. um, I've had an experience of being with someone who I was very close to, mm-hmm. who was very into maintaining that equanimity mm-hmm. in love, which sounds good. Mm. And then I got cancer. Mm. And it felt, I felt, um, I don't know how to explain it, hurt mm-hmm. by the lack of mm-hmm. of reaction mm-hmm. over there. Mm-hmm. How, you know, how does that, can you say something about Yeah, that? thank you. I'd be happy to. In fact, Maureen probably, do you want to say something about that? No, okay. <laughs> the first thing that Maureen said um, was that we hold our hearts open with the wish, uh, our wholehearted wish, may you be happy. And we balance that with the equanimity, which is a metta wish, basically. And we balance that with the equanimity phrase, all beings are heirs to their own karma. The near enemy of equanimity, so every Brahma Vihara has a state that looks like it, but is actually an unwholesome state, the near enemy of equanimity is indifference. And so um, equanimity really comes from a place that the heart is open and can really feel and respond to other people's sufferings. But there's not an inner disturbance going on inside along with that. So um, what it sounds to me like is that your friend had an equanimity that was shading to indifference and didn't have the kind of equanimity that had a really compassionate side to it, too. And equanimity can be used to, to armor the heart, which is not what's supposed to happen. The Brahma-viharas are supposed to open the heart. So if you look at the Dalai Lama, he's like a grandmother when he's around somebody who's suffering. He'll go into a group and he'll kind of, his radar will kind of zero in on the person in the group who's in the most suffering, and he'll go right to them and take care of them or talk to them, hold them. But at the same time, he'll do it with a huge amount of humor. You know, he won't get into pity or even being very glum about it. He has this great, bright humor, even while he's with people who are suffering. So the full thing needs that balance. Yeah, thanks. Lynn? Well, I'm just thinking this at this moment that when we're really um, wishing ourselves happiness and we're Mm -hmm. wishing happiness for other people, Mm -hmm. we're wishing them to be in that state of emptiness, Mm -hmm. of openness, Mm -hmm. so that they can or we can um, take anything that comes Mm -hmm. to us Mm -hmm. and see it in perspective and not own the things that are going on out there to mm-hmm. be in that state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's really true. Um, I think that's the heart of, of happiness. You might say the highest kind of happiness is freedom. It's interesting, doing the metta phrases over a period of time, they point to kind of different sources of happiness or conditions for happiness. You know, the first one is being safe and protected from harm. second one is being happy at heart. The third is being um, in harmony with the body, either healthy or accepting of, of unhealth. And the fourth is living with ease in the outer world, having a livelihood and family relationships that are, that are harmonious. So you look at all those as you dwell with them over the course of doing metta practice, you see all of these are components of happiness. But the deepest kind of happiness the Buddha talked about was inner freedom, inner peace. So you start to realize that's one of the things we definitely wish for people. I think, Guy, that there's a, a sense that equanimity <clears throat> is a benign quality. Mm-hmm. And, and it isn't. Mm. I think equanimity is just uh, absolutely being with what is. Mm-hmm. And that there is no separation mm-hmm. between what is. Mm-hmm. And at that point in time, there cannot be any grasping, there cannot be any aversion. Mm-hmm. And so dukkha cannot arise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. Equanimity is one of the highest qualities the Buddha talked about 
Um, if you look at the list of the seven factors of enlightenment, it is the one before enlightenment. And um, it's on a number of the lists, including the Brahma-viharas. So this state of just a balance of mind that's not moved by the comings and goings, the changes of life, it's kind of the closest thing to Nibbana, to the unconditioned, that he could point to. The great state of freedom. Okay, we should probably stop here. It's 11. So thank you all very much for your practice and your discussion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.